Hey, welcome to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in the personal finance space to find out how they achieved financial independence. I'm excited to welcome back my first repeat guest on the show. Uh, but before I do, I have a proposition for you. Um, the email I most often get from people and readers and listeners is uh, requests to do more podcast episodes. Um, I know you guys like them and I love doing them, uh, but the problem is it just takes a lot of work to do it. So if I'm going to increase my frequency, I'm going to need some external motivation to do it because otherwise I would have done it already. So here's what I'm thinking. I often hear other podcasters ask their listeners to leave iTunes reviews, and I imagine that's because the more reviews a show has, the higher it will rank in iTunes, and then the more people that will listen and the more fun everybody has. So um, I know personally I love getting reviews. I recently just got one from MK Duran, and it was probably my favorite review I've ever got, um, and it really motivated me to put out more shows and to keep doing it. So here's my proposition. Um I will double my podcasting frequency as soon as I hit 200 five-star reviews in iTunes. I currently publish about once a month, uh, so that would mean increasing my frequency to twice a month, which seems crazy to me right now, but there's a lot of guests I really want to get on the show, uh, and hopefully once I get into the rhythm of the new frequency, then it won't be that much work. Uh, it seems overwhelming right now, but I think I can do it. So uh, yeah, hopefully this would be a win-win for everyone. Uh, you now have a good incentive to leave a review. And then uh, if we hit that number, I'll have a very big incentive to publish more frequently because I won't want to break my promise. So I can't promise that I'll keep that frequency forever, but at least until the end of the year. Uh, and hopefully it'll become a habit and it'll keep going indefinitely, but I'll at least uh, commit to doing it until the end of the year. So if you're interested, uh, please head over to iTunes. I'll put a link in the show notes, and uh, you can leave a review there. And while you're there, check out my new podcast logo. Um, I had a buddy of mine who's a graphic designer. Uh, he took some photos of me with some laboratory equipment that I borrowed from my brother-in-law, who actually works in a real lab. And we put together a new logo. And in that podcast logo is the new Matt Fientist logo, which will be coming out soon. Uh, so if you want to get a sneak peek of what that new Matt Fientist logo looks like, uh, head over to iTunes as well. And while you're there, you might as well leave a review. So, uh, so yeah, thanks a lot in advance and hopefully we'll, we'll get some more podcast episodes out. So back to the real reason we're here. I'm excited to introduce back my second guest uh, on the show, my second ever guest way back in the day, right when this podcast started, um, Jim Collins. Uh, Jim has become a really good friend of mine over the years. Uh, we've hung out many times. We used to live close together. So I'm excited to get him back on the show. Um, and it's a really exciting time for Jim because he's just releasing his first book called The Simple Path to Wealth. Um, and if you're familiar with his work over at jlcollinsnh.com, you know that it's going to be good. Um, and I've had the chance to read it already, and it, it definitely is. So if you've read his stock series over the years, you know that he's the main man when it comes to investing. Um, in fact, I don't really write about general investing topics because I just send everyone to him because he's written really everything you need to know about investing. And this book uh, contains it all. So I'm really excited to talk to him about it. And I'm also excited to see if anything's changed over the last four years or so since I last talked to him on the show. So uh, without further delay, uh, Jim, welcome. Thanks for being here. Brandon, it's my pleasure. It's nice to talk to you uh, again. It's been a while since we've done this. I know. I uh, I actually looked into it. Um, just because I knew it, you were my second podcast guest ever. No, oh, okay. wow. <laughs> which uh, hopefully the interview will be a bit better than last time. I remember way back then that I was pretty awful at asking questions, and then I had to re-record 
every single question I asked because I would bumble through it and it was just disgusting. So I would spend like five hours uh, editing every single episode. So hopefully this one's going to go a lot smoother. That's not how I remember it. I, 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 I remember it fondly and I remember listening to it saying, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty good. And it was one of the first uh, times I'd ever been interviewed. So oh, you're a fabulous <laughs> interviewee. And uh, yeah, I just, uh, I'm so I was so fabulous. You waited four years to have. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah, four long years. It was uh, four years to cover, right? Exactly, four years. So yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I looked into it, and it was October of 2012 that 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 podcast got released. So I, it's just that insane to me. Away. Absolutely crazy. So yeah, this is. Uh, it's good to finally have you back on again, and it's it's something that I've actually was hoping to do over the years. Uh, you know, you've obviously put out a ton of amazing content over the years. And, uh, one of the, the best things I think you've created on your site is the stock series. And I know you had written some of those posts prior to our interview, but you've, you know, collected them into one place and sort of laid them out as well. Um, and it's, it's the place where I send everyone to, if anyone asks me about investing or if I am writing a post and I need and I don't want feel like writing about a topic, then I'll send them to your stock series. Um, so that's something I definitely want to get into today because that wasn't there in its entirety um, when we chatted last time. And in addition to the stock series, I'm excited that you're now releasing a book that takes all of that great information and you know lays it out in a very easy-to-consume manner. So uh, we, we definitely have a lot to talk about. But um, can you maybe talk about why you decided to write the book and maybe, you know, the progression from that stock series into what is now the simple path to wealth. Sure. Well, the stock series, let's start with the stock series because that's, that's been kind of an interesting journey. Um, when I first came up with the idea for it, I, in there are now, I think it's up to 29 uh, posts in the stock series. And then, uh, as you said, I have a button on my website, which is labeled Stock Series, where these 29 posts are listed uh, in the order they were they were published. And then I also list related posts. And uh, when I first came up with the idea for the Stock Series, I only had the first five that appear in there in mind. I sort of, that was my plan, that there were going to be these five posts, and that would be it. And... So I put them up one at a time, and I started to get feedback from my readers, and really good feedback. And over the course of the intervening years from the from those first five, based on that feedback and based on the questions that, that readers would ask, I began they began to lead me into other topics. And I, I would think, oh, well, yeah, it makes sense that, that people who are pursuing financial independence, which is the core of what you and I both talk about. Yeah, that, that's, I, I ought to write about that. So I would. And, and so that would be a post in the stock series. And then sometimes there would be posts that didn't quite fit in the stock series, or maybe I'd written before the stock series that also relate to it, which is why that related, those related posts are in that, that same general thing. So this, the stock series has kind of grown organically. And I forget who might have even been you. Brandon, who first suggested that I pull them all together under a button, because they were just uh, in the archives. You could find them that way, but it wasn't prominent. And that was one of the 
in terms of the health and the growth of the blog, that was one of the smartest suggestions that I was ever uh, smart enough to follow because that gave a place for people to go and, and it gave other bloggers like yourself who, who um, like the stock series and want to refer their readers to it a single place to go. And, and so it made sharing it a lot more convenient. And, and then as you indicated, so to take it to the, to the next step, um, I began to realize that there was a book there. And in the book, uh, there was an opportunity to better organize all of this material. And because the stock series, while there's 20, there, as I mentioned, they're in the order they were published. But that's not necessarily the best order to read them in, in terms of absorbing the information. So the book, I had an opportunity to organize it in a way that made the most sense to incorporate some of those ideas and posts that were not part of the series, but were really part of the overall concept. And, and in the process to, to make it much more concise and also, I think, better written. I mean, I put a lot of effort in my blog posts, as you do, but there's a whole other level of polishing that, that goes into a book. And uh, so I, I think of the, the Simple Path to Wealth, the book, as the stock series and related posts, condensed, better organized, uh, and probably a better, easier way to absorb the information. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's definitely laid out very nicely, and it reads very well. And it's, it, it is literally everything you need to know to be a successful investor and uh, is your, pretty much your whole life of experience with investing. I know from speaking to you last time that you learned many lessons the hard way uh, over the years, but I would say four years ago, you know, you had a pretty much solidified what I think is a, you know, a great strategy. Um, I was wondering if there's anything that's changed or that you tweaked since then. Well, it's, it's interesting because when I, when I started writing the blog five years ago, I had, I started investing in, uh, 1975, so now I've just aged myself, dated myself. So I've been knocking around this stuff for a long time, and and I, I heard somebody earlier today say that the definition of an, of an expert in the field is somebody who has made all the possible stakes, mistakes that can be made. And that certainly, if I haven't claimed any expertise in this, it's because I have made all the possible mistakes that you can make. And by the time I started writing the blog, I pretty much made those those mistakes. So that was 2011. I guess I'd been investing for 35 years, something something like that at that point. So there has not been a lot of change in my philosophy or approach. And as I'm sitting here, the only one I can really think of is when I first started writing the blog, um, I recommended three mutual funds. I, that's one of the things that I'm noted for is is keeping things absolutely as simple as possible. And now I only recommend two. I recommend total stock market index fund, and I recommend a total bond market index fund. When I first started the blog, the third was a REIT fund. And I no longer, I, I have I actually have a post on the blog called Stepping Away from, from REITs. And... Uh, uh, I don't didn't step away from them because I think REITs are bad. Um, I stepped away from them because the role that I wanted them to play in the portfolio, I was becoming more convinced that 
they didn't play as well as I initially thought they would and that the total stock market index fund was playing that role at least as well, if not better. And the role I'm referring to, by the way, is inflation protection. So uh, real estate is, is somewhat commonly thought of as, as a good inflation hedge. And to a certain extent it is, but surprisingly it's not much better or maybe even slightly worse than, than holding individual equities. And so over time, I, I decided, you know, if you own the total stock market index fund, which is the core of what I recommend, you already own REITs because they're part of the total stock market. And by the way, for anybody who doesn't know, REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. So it's a way of holding real estate investments without physically having to buy uh, real estate, just like owning stocks is a way of owning businesses without actually having to to operate the things. And uh, so anyway, I, I, I just came to the conclusion that I really didn't re need REITs to, to accomplish what I had originally put them in to accomplish. But other than that, I, you know, there's probably one or two minor things that I'm not thinking of, but they're pretty minor. Right. So it really is the simple path to wealth. So I think that's probably a good uh, point to actually, you know, describe a little bit about your investment philosophy for those that may not know uh, or may not have read your blog. So when when you say simple, you mean simple. You you two funds. Um, is there anything uh, else you want to just quickly discuss about the general philosophy? Sure. Well, I think that that there are, there are really three. If you want to be financially independent, right there there are really uh, three things that you need to do. And if you do these three things simply, you'll wind up wealthy. Uh, one is you have to avoid debt. You can't become financially independent and be in debt. Uh, you have to spend less than you earn because the surplus that you don't spend is the money that you need to free up so you can invest. And that's the third leg of the stool is investing. So avoid debt, spend less than you earn, and invest. And when it comes to investing, um, index investing, and we can talk about what that means if, if uh, we have time and you're so inclined, but index investing has been around for about 40 years. And it was initially, um, and not just initially, but even to this day, um, vilified by Wall Street because it strips away a lot of the costs that are involved in investing. And the research over the 40 years is, has been uh, copious and dramatic. And index investing simply outperforms everything else. Uh, that's counterintuitive in a, in a lot of cases, but there it is. And that's not just me saying that. That's what the research says. Um, even people like Warren Buffett, who have become incredibly wealthy and incredibly famous by not indexing, by uh, actively picking stocks, uh, Warren Buffett's on record as saying, you know, when he passes, uh, the investment strategy for his widow is going to be index investing. Um, and it's important to recognize that the reason Warren Buffett is as famous as he is is that he has accomplished something that is incredibly difficult 
difficult to accomplish, and that's he's outperformed the index. So I kind of, my blood runs a little bit cold, and I kind of cringe when I hear people say, well, I'm, I'm not going to bother with indexing. I'm going to do what Warren Buffett's going to do, <laughs> what Warren Buffett has done. And it's like, as if. <laughs> yeah. You know, I... I, you know, I could read all all the books and watch all the films of Mike Tyson boxing in the ring, and it would still be suicide for me to get in the ring with Mike Tyson. Right, exactly. And I, the idea that that you know you're gonna you're gonna go to Warren Buffett's uh, annual events, which are wonderful things to attend, and that you're gonna read his books and and the books that people have written about him, and then go duplicate what he's done. Well, let me know about it, and I'll sell the tickets. <laughs> So I want, I want to step back from uh, to your first comment of avoiding debt. Um, I know people out there will maybe be confused as to, well, does that include mortgages and student loans? And I, I'm actually interested in your take on it. You know, th- th- that's a great question, and, and it's a tricky issue. Uh, when I was working on this book, uh, I had nothing in it about debt. And... Tim, who's my editor, Tim Lawrence, who's my editor, uh, uh, started insisting that I write a chapter about that because it was that important. And I kind of resisted that uh, for a variety of, of reasons that don't make too much sense as I look back on it. But I did resist it for whatever, whatever reason. And eventually he prevailed. And, and I think it's critically important because... Uh, it is, I think I resisted it because my thought was, well, obviously, you know, you can't, you can't begin to set aside money to invest if you're still paying off debts. So it goes without saying you get rid of the debt first and then you read my book and you'll know where to go from there. But it made a lot of sense as I listened to Tim to to write about, about dealing with the debt. And there is such a thing, or at least a term of, of good debt. So you have Bad debt is generally defined as things that you you borrow money to buy that immediately go down in value, and a car is a classic example. So a car loan is bad debt. You know, you're borrowing money to go to buy something that the moment you drive it out of the dealership is worth 10, 20, whatever it is, percent less. And good debt is traditionally defined as buying something that will hopefully go up in value. So if you're operating a business, not every business uses debt, but a lot of businesses use debt to facilitate their growth. And that's considered good debt because if it's used wisely and successfully, the business will grow even faster and will be more prosperous than if you didn't have it. And people then then look at houses and mortgages and say, well, that's good debt because the value of my house will rise. Well, this is a little trickier because, first of all, the value of houses doesn't always rise. The value of businesses doesn't either, but at least your business is in your control. The value of your house, as a lot of people found out to their sorrow five, six years ago, um, may or may not go up, up or down and It'll be very little in your control. And some people say, well, yeah, if you buy wisely and in the right area, and et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes what's the right area today turns out not to be the right area tomorrow. So it, it's a little more difficult. Traditionally, people say getting mortgages for houses is good debt because they will go up. Um, 
I'm a little more cautious about it. And I'm a little, and this, this is really beyond the scope of the book, but I'm a little more cautious about the idea of automatically buying houses because it's, it's a good idea. And I have written about this on the, on the blog. I think that is my, my favorite post of yours, actually. So I will definitely link to it in the show okay. notes. Um, it's, yeah, it, I, I would say that's, that's one of my favorite blog posts in general of all time. So I will definitely link to that. <laughs> You're referring to why your house is a terrible investment? That's it. Yep. That's the one. <laughs> That's that's the post that's gotten me both the most love and the most hate. <laughs> yeah, uh, because it yeah it challenges the the American religion, and some people come away from that saying, "Well, Colin says you should never own a house," and that's not true. I've owned houses myself. I I don't own one at the moment, and I'm relieved to be done with owning houses. That's the best thing but, ever, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But from my point of view, it is. But not for everybody. I mean, I understand some people really put down roots and and take great value and satisfaction in their homes. And I've written about that, too. I have a post called uh, Roots versus Wings. Uh, so I'm not opposed to owning houses. What I'm opposed to is the real estate industry propaganda that everybody should own a house, you should always own a house, and it's the best financial thing you can do. In my world, owning a house is an expensive indulgence. And there's nothing wrong with expensive indulgences if you can afford them. But if you're striving for financial independence, you have to very carefully weigh whether buying a house is is going to suit your goal of reaching financial independence. It can in some markets, and I have a post about that, which is taking you through the the exercise of evaluating renting versus buying in a given market from just a financial point of view. And I think everybody ought to do that. Not all decisions you make are financial. But all decisions you make, you should understand what the financial implications are. And so if you run through that, for instance, I, we sold our last house three years ago. And the lifestyle that we prefer at the moment is renting. So I did this analysis. And as it happens, renting is considerably less expensive for us than owning a house was. Now, that's not true everywhere and in all markets. And if I'd run the analysis and found that renting was more expensive, I might still have decided to rent because that would have been the expensive indulgence that I was willing to buy and willing to afford. But I would have known that I was what I was doing and that I was making the more expensive choice. But I'm just saying make sure that you run the numbers so you know if you want to own a house, you might run the numbers and find that it is the more economically advantageous decision. And they're great. That aligns perfectly with what you want to do anyway. But you might find out that it's going to cost you more money, and that's okay, too, as long as you understand. And if, you're, if that's how you're willing to spend your money, then, then uh, that's fine. So you mentioned that you have a two-fund approach. So you have a total stock market index fund, total bond market index fund. Um, I know some people out there may be thinking uh, – Maybe you need some international exposure. A lot of a lot of people recommend having a total international fund to diversify further. So I'd I like to get your take on that. Well, you Brandon, you're right. This is this is a key area where my advice uh, parts company with the vast majority of people out there who are talking about this stuff. The vast majority of, of sample portfolios that I've seen put together include international. And uh, as you point out, uh, I don't. Uh, 
There are really three reasons for this. One, um, added risk, uh, added expense, and, and we've got it covered. So let's kind of talk about those. Uh, added risks, you have a couple of added risks when you buy international funds. One is currency. So when you own international companies and international markets, they're all trading in their local currencies. So if you own international, if you own uh, European uh, companies, for instance, they're trading in the euro. If you own Japanese companies, they're trading in the yen, etc. And those currencies uh, fluctuate and trade against the U.S. dollar. So there is what's called currency risk that the value of your holdings will go up and down, not just with the value of your holdings, but with the value of the currency that you are holding them in. Um, you don't have that when you own VTSAX, which is the fund that I recommend, which is the total stock market index fund for the U.S. from Vanguard. It owns every publicly traded company in the United States. So the second risk you have internationally is accounting risks. So the U.S. isn't perfect, but the accounting standards and the transparency of those standards are the best in the world in the U.S. And we certainly have our Enrons. We have companies that occasionally blow up. So there's that risk doesn't completely go away, but it is a lower risk than you have anywhere else in the world. So currency risks and accounting risks are two risks that you take on when you invest internationally. And then you have added expense. The the cost of BTSAX, total stock market index fund here in the U.S., is 0.05%. Uh, Vanguard has great international funds if people are interested in them. Um, their expense ratios are very, very low, but they're still about three times what BTSAX is. They're run about, I think the day of last time I looked, they were uh, 0.15 or 0.18 or something like that. Still incredibly low is is expense ratios on funds go, but nevertheless more expensive than our BTSAX. But the most important thing is, and the reason that I don't personally own international and I don't see the need, is we've got it covered. When you own VTSAX, you own about 3,600 U.S. companies, virtually every publicly traded company in the market. And the vast majority of those, or the, or the vast majority of your holdings, uh, are in the largest companies in the U.S., the what's called the S&P 500. About 80% of VTSAX is tilted to, towards those large companies. And those large companies, for the most part, are by definition international businesses. So if you think of companies like Apple or General Motors or Caterpillar or Google or Facebook, for that matter, these are international businesses. So when you own the U.S. market, you have a significant participation in the growth of the world markets, and you own it in the least expensive and the least risky possible way that, that you can own it. Now, having said all that, if somebody came to me and said, well, you know, I get that, but I still want to own international, I don't think it's a terrible thing to do. I just don't think it's a necessary thing to do. Oh, great explanation. Um, I'd like to dive into the sort of balance between the total stock market and total bond market index funds. So obviously two, two funds, that's, that's very simple. That's great. I, I think it's a great way to go. Um, what are your thoughts on the percentages between those two, especially 
today and the current interest rate environment, um, I, you know, what do, what are your take on bonds and how much should you have? Well, that's, that's, that's actually, you cover a lot of ground in that, in that one question. So let's talk about allocation first. And then if, if you remind me, we'll talk about bonds and the interest rate sure. uh, issue, issue second. I'll probably forget about it by the time we get there. Um, so as you read through my stock series, or if you read through the book, the, the simple path to wealth, you're going to see I talk about two different stages in an investor's life. One is the wealth accumulation stage, and the other is the wealth preservation stage. And the wealth accumulation stage is simply that time in your life when you are working, you're earning an income. As we discussed earlier, you're living on, on less than you earn, and you are investing the difference. And, of course, the more aggressively you are are savings, saving, and the less you're living on and the more you're saving and investing, the faster you'll get to financial independence. So that money that you're investing is flowing into um, into your, your stocks and, and your investments. And that serves to smooth out the ride because while the stock while stocks in the stock market is an incredibly powerful wealth building tool, it is also very, very volatile. It goes up and down dramatically. It marches relentlessly upwards, but in a very volatile fashion, as anybody who pays attention to it notices, and certainly anybody who, who was uh, around and investing during the uh, 08, 09 financial crisis. When you are in that wealth-building phase, I recommend that you're 100% in BTSAX, 100% stocks. In most quarters, that's considered very, very aggressive. But because you are continually putting new money in, because you're earning money and you're, you're taking that savings rate, that new money is actually taking advantage of those dips in the market, that volatility. So that volatility begins to work in your favor. And that's in the wealth accumulation stage. Now, the wealth preservation stage comes when you no longer have earned income and you are no longer putting new money into your investments, and instead, you are now having your investments support you. You're financially independent, or, or maybe you're just taking a sabbatical for a while, and, and that's the wealth preservation stage, and that's at the point where, because you no longer have that cash flow of new investable money, you need something else to smooth out the volatility of the stock market, and that's bonds. And so at that point, you add bonds to your portfolio. Now, I want to make the point that this is not necessarily an age-related thing. Traditionally, it would be because traditionally you would work, you know, from coming out of, out of school for 40 years or whatever it is to retire at 65, and, and that's very cut and dried. But in this modern world, and particularly for the, the people who are probably listening to this podcast, there are a lot more dynamic ways to live life. And a lot of people, and you're a good example, who are working for a while and then and then they stop. And maybe they they've accumulated enough to be financially independent and they're done working forever. But more likely, if if you're that young, you're going to wind up doing something else that that creates cash flow down the line. So the point being, your wealth preservation stage and your um, your wealth. Uh, your your growth stage and your preservation stages 
can can vary at different times in your life. So I would say whenever you step away from earned income, that's when you want to also step into your wealth preservation portfolio. Now, as to what that allocation should be, that depends a lot on your tolerance for risks because bonds serve to smooth the ride. And I encourage people not to think so much as the return you get on bonds, especially in this low interest rate environment, but rather as the counterbalance to the volatility of stocks that, that they provide. If you were to graph VTSAX, the total stock market index fund, and VBTLX, which is the total bond market index fund, you would see a very wild ride with VTSAX, the stocks, um, that ultimately winds up much higher over a given period of time. And you would see a very slow, gradual, uh, very, very, uh, very slow, gradual, almost no volatility on the bonds, but that underperform stocks over time. So that's why you don't want to go entirely with bonds. Yeah, that all definitely makes perfect sense. And as you were saying that, I was, you know, trying to envision how I'm going to feel in a couple months when I finally step away from work. Um, and I completely agree that I should move more into bonds. I currently don't have any because, you know, I'm I, just as you mentioned in your wealth accumulation phase, like uh, I'm, I'm happy riding out the bad times just to have better times when the good times come. So, um, but ideally I should move into bonds, but it's, it's just really difficult to do right now considering interest rates and everything. And that made me think, you know, investing is such a psychological thing. It, you know, if, if only it was just numbers, then, you know, I think most of us listening to this and me included would, you know, kill it because numbers are, are easy and you can solve numbers. Um, but it's the psychology behind it that's really difficult that people struggle with, which is why I like your simple path to wealth because, you know, the last thing you need is more complexity in your strategy when you're try you know, you're trying to deal with all these psychological things as well. So um, I'm wondering if there's anything that you still personally struggle with um, when you know you should do something, but you still do something different. Um, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that I started investing in 1975. And while, as it happens, that was the year that Jack Bogle created the first index fund. Uh, I didn't hear about index funds for 10 years, and it probably took me another 10 plus years to be smart enough to accept how powerful they were. So I spent the early part of my investing life, in fact, as I look back on it, most of my investing life, picking individual stocks and trying to pick individual managers of mutual funds who were in turn picking individual stocks. Um, and I, it, it's, it's, it's like a disease. So I still occasionally buy the indiv an individual stock, and, and I happen to own two. I'm not going to say what they are because... <laughs> it's probably not a good idea to own either one of them. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine who's into individual stocks these last few days. And one of them that I own is is down sharply, and I've been thinking about adding to the position because I I still like it and I still like the story. And uh, this guy also owns it. And we we're kicking it back, and he said, uh, "By the way, I really like uh, you know." I was talking about ABC Company and. And he said, by the way, I really like XYZ Company. And I 
emailed him back and I said, you don't understand. I am not looking to build a portfolio of <laughs> stocks. I, I, I own two. I, I don't want to own any more than two. I'm probably not all that happy owning these two. <laughs> so, you know, if you say that, that you really like XYZ, that only makes any difference to me if you're saying I should sell ABC or DFE and move into XYZ <laughs> because I am not going to be adding XYZ. <laughs> And I and I and and I will also add very quickly that the percentage of my portfolio that I allocate to these individual stocks is it's less than five percent of of our net worth. So it's 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 my play money. And I'm, I'm, glad, you know, you, I'm glad you haven't completely reformed and are now this oh, perfect not, uh, oh, perfect investor. The problem the problem with individual stocks is that. When you buy one and it works, it, it's there are a few better feelings than than uh, analyzing a stock and and buying it and then watching it begin to soar. But what I've begun to realize more and more over the years, and I am a slow learner, is that the times that it's worked and soared and it's such a wonderful feeling. And the times that it hasn't worked and hasn't gone anywhere or worse yet has gone down, there's been no difference in my analytical abilities or effort. So it has been sheer luck when it's worked. Well, the other problem is sure. the, the the position I find myself in is, you know, I don't know how many years ago I thought this was an amazing opportunity and I was like, this is crazy. I'm just going to have to pick up some of the stock. And I did, and, it, and I was right. Luckily, like you said, I could have equally been wrong because the amount of analysis I put into it was, you know, laughable. <laughs> so, um, but now I got this stock that's gone up a lot in my taxable account, and I can't sell it because I don't want to take the tax hit. And I'm like, oh, I just, I just want to get rid of it and, you know, just be fully VTSAX. Um, but I got well, this. Let me, let me just correct you on one thing. Uh, the problem was not that you didn't put enough work into the analysis. It wouldn't have mattered. Right, you could have, exactly. You, 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 yeah, you you could have put in ten thousand times the amount of work in the analysis. It's it's just picking individual stocks is is it's a fool's game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I spent a little bit of time in in uh, working for an investment research firm, and we had some of the best uh, analysts in, in, in that were working at the time, and. I, and that's not just my opinion. They were Institutional Investor, which is a mag. I think it's still around. It was a magazine that, that served the market in the day, would periodically rank and pick the, the best stock analysts that were out there. And and it was common that, that the analysts working for the firm where I was working would uh, would take those those awards. And they would know these. I mean, these are guys who live and breathe this stuff. They have, first of all... Um, the best educations you can have in the uh, in the field. Uh, they have dedicated their career to following and analyzing stocks. They live and breathe it every day. They are focused on one, maybe two industries, and maybe half a dozen companies in each of those industries. They know these companies intimately. They know the the CEOs and the CFOs and the top managers of these companies, they go out and, and talk to their customers and they go out and talk to the rank and file. I mean, that's their business. They live and breathe this stuff and they still get it wrong. Right. 
And then the idea that you or I or any of our listeners are going to read a few 10Ks uh, and and successfully compete in that market, it's, it's just it's silliness. Um, and that's why, as we talked about earlier, you know, Warren Buffett is so famous and so revered because he's done something that is pretty much impossible and so few people are willing to do. And let me, and let me make another point as long as uh, the subject of Warren Buffett came up. And when we were talking, I was saying earlier that you can't predict the stock market. And so, therefore, you can't sidestep when the market plunges uh, to either to take advantage of it or to avoid the pain. And so people, when, when the market collapsed in uh, 2008, 2009, uh, and Warren Buffett, of course, came out smelling like a rose, and people say, well, see, that's part of Warren Buffett's skill is, is he was able to predict the stock market crash and avoid it. Well, that's not true. Warren Buffett did not uh, predict the stock market crash. And in fact, at the towards the bottom of the market plunge, uh, I looked it up and, and Warren was down $33 billion. Mm-hmm. Now, he still had about $25 billion left. So I was going around saying to all my friends, I wish I was down $33 billion. <laughs> right. And the, you know, the implication being... So it wasn't that, that Buffett wasn't able to predict the decline and step away from it. What Buffett did and what made him successful is he didn't panic in the decline. He didn't sell anything. And because Buffett has great resources, he also was able to deploy, to deploy new money during the decline buy at those cheap prices. So as I was saying earlier, any of our, our beginning investors or younger investors or even those that are in, in the middle part of building their wealth, you well, you should be welcoming declines. And that's, if anything, not only should you not panic and sell, if anything, like Warren Buffett, you should be deploying new capital if you have it. Absolutely. So I usually end my interviews with one question, which I asked you four years ago, which I'm pretty excited about because I haven't listened to that episode in a while. So I can't remember what you said, and I will be interested to see if you say and the same thing or not. I don't remember, I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> well, good. So I'm we'll, a get, a, we'll get a fresh new answer. Um, so yeah, just if you had one piece of advice for someone who is hoping to pursue financial independence, uh, what would that be? Oh, I'm I'm pretty sure it's I, I I'm going to give the same answer that I that I did four years ago, and uh, well, actually, I'll probably give a little more elaborate answer this time. But I I would guess the answer I gave four years ago, and the answer I would give now, is index funds. Um, you know, if you're, I I I think that that uh, uh, I would encourage people not to waste as much time as I did uh, pursuing individual stocks and pursuing mutual funds that are operated by people who are trying to pick individual stocks. Um, And by the way, let me just make a quick point on that. It's not as if individual stocks and actively managed mutual funds can't make you money. I actually achieved financial independence investing in individual stocks and investing in uh, mutual funds that were run by managers that I thought would outperform. You can make money doing that. I did. But 
index funds are not only easier, they are more powerful. I would have made more money more easily had I adopted indexing earlier. So that would be my, my biggest piece of advice. If you haven't already embraced the power of indexing, then embrace it. And then secondarily, my advice would just be the core that we talked about at the beginning. If you want to be wealthy and successful in life, uh, there's really three keys, and that's avoid debt, uh, live below your means, and invest the, uh, the difference. That's, that's it, Jim. I think, uh, like I said, I haven't listened to that episode for a while, but uh, just listening to you talk after me asking that question, it, it brought it all back. And that is, I think, that is exactly what you said the, the first time all four years ago. So You'll have to link to that interview so people can check. Absolutely, I will, and I'm going to actually go check after after we get off the phone. But I'm almost yeah, positive. Let, let, let me know. I probably won't bother to check, but let let me know how I did. <laughs> um, so yeah, Jim, thanks so much for uh, joining me again. All these years later, uh, congratulations on the book, um, The Simple Path to thanks. Wealth. Really excited about it. Uh, like I said, it's everything you need to know to be a successful investor, and definitely recommend it to everyone. Um, and yeah, thanks again, buddy. It's uh, it's nice to chat to you now that. We're good friends, and you're not just some stranger on the internet. Um, you know, I have to say, I was a little weirded out to meet. I, I think you may be the very first person I met in real life from the blog, and I was like, "Oh, oh man, really? I, I I think, yeah, I think because I came down to your place for dinner." You this is when me. you you used to live in Vermont, and of yeah. course, we, New Hampshire. Exactly, you're two hours away, and uh, yeah. Yeah. your wife cooked us a amazing curry. A, delicious curry and uh, that's right oh, so yeah it was amazing um but yeah i think you were the very first person that i re- met in real life and i was like man i'm gonna this is weird we're gonna we're gonna go and meet people i met on the internet this is what if they're crazy or what if they kill us or <laughs> and, 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 and you had such an experience the next thing i knew you were selling your house in vermont and moving to scotland <laughs> exactly I'll, I'll try not to take that personally <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it was a it was a very enjoyable evening we had a great time and we've done it many times since so uh we had a great time with with, with you guys and as, as we always have excellent well thanks Jim. And thank I, you by the way for for your very kind uh congratulations on the book it is it's been a ton of work getting it out but I'm. I can genuinely say that I am uh, very pleased with the way it it turned out, and I hope that if anybody listening chooses to read it, they enjoy it and that they'll drop a comment and and, uh, and let me know. Absolutely. And yeah. thank you for inviting me back. It oh is, yeah. Oh, I hope I won't have to wait four years for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. All right. Thanks. Uh, hopefully, see you soon. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Finance.